Amen. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So I think it was last December when um, the elders were talking about uh, after five years of ministry here at PBC, taking a month-long sabbatical, those plans were made, and we planned uh, this Sunday, actually, many of you knew. The plan was after the service uh, to get on the road and tour New England as a family. Uh, and yet, if you hadn't noticed when you walked in, there's a dear member of my family in a wheelchair back there, my sweet Holly, uh, who uh, on Friday night uh, after spending the day packing the rest of our bags, making our final preparations. Uh, we was going for a walk with some friends and stepped into a hole and broke her leg. And so um, we were reminded that we make plans and God establishes our steps. As I helped my wife into the car uh, to take her to the emergency room on Friday night, um, before we left, we had prayer with our friends, dear friends from Fox Hill Road Baptist Church, Pastor Nathan Cecil and his wife, Jancy. And um, Jancy prayed that God would heal Holly's leg, that he would, on the way from their house to the hospital, he would heal. Why do you pray something like that? We pray things like that because of what we believe about Jesus. We believe that Jesus is not dead, but living. We believe that Jesus is not absent, but present. We believe that Jesus is not weak, but powerful. We believe that Jesus has the power to heal. And so we pray, and yet I'm well aware that there are countless people that have different beliefs about Jesus, perhaps maybe even somebody in this room this morning. Perhaps you might think, well, that's, a, that's an okay thing for you to believe about Jesus. You can have your Jesus, and I'll have mine. Kind of different strokes for different folks sorts of thing. And there's all sorts of different conceptions of Jesus, of who He is. But the best place to find the truth about Jesus is not our feelings, it's not our beliefs, it's not our experiences, but it's at looking at the truth of God's Word and what Jesus says and what Jesus does. So I want to invite you, if you're not already there, to go in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. In this section of Matthew's gospel, we've been walking through this 
book together for a while. And in chapters 8 and 9, you might remember that we are presented by Matthew with three different accounts, three different sets of three miracle stories. And the big idea in these two chapters is that Jesus is incredibly powerful, that Jesus is a healer, that Jesus has wonder-working, miracle-working power. And as we come to the conclusion of this section in Matthew's gospel, we're going to see five truths about Jesus from what Jesus says about himself and from what Jesus does. And and I want you to see what Matthew wants us to see through this entire gospel is that Jesus is the King of Kings. He's not some religious teacher He's not a guru. He's not just a good person. He is the king of kings. And that's what this section in Matthew's gospel is all about. I want you to look with me, beginning at verse 18. Truth number one about who Jesus is. Jesus receives worship. The countless people that say that Jesus never claimed to be God. And yet, if you look at the Gospels carefully, you will find Jesus repeatedly receiving worship from fellow human beings. We see that in our text beginning in verse 18. It starts, it says, while, while he was saying these things to them. You remember, um, the last time we were in Matthew's gospel, about a month and a half ago, we covered verses 14 to 17, and Jesus there was talking with John's disciples about why he and his disciples didn't fast. So Jesus is talking to John's disciples, and in the middle of that conversation, as he's telling them that, that you know, he's, he's the, the, the bridegroom, as he's having this conversation with John's disciples, he's interrupted. Verse 18 continues, Behold, a ruler came in and knelt before Jesus. If you read the Gospels of Mark and Luke, in both of those accounts, we learn that this man had a name. His name was Jairus. And he wasn't just any ruler. He was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, in those days, synagogues were were the local gatherings for God's people. They would go to the temple for sacrifice and for festivals, but the temple was in Jerusalem, and most people weren't at the temple regularly, so they would go to a local synagogue, and that would be the place for prayer. That would be the place, place for Bible study. That would be the place for community, in some ways not unlike a local church. Jairus was the ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. And as a ruler of the synagogue, you remember how did the religious leaders in Jesus' day tend to respond to Jesus? They were his chiefest opponents. Everywhere we go in the gospel accounts, Jesus seems to be butting heads with the religious elites, perhaps at one point including this man named Jairus. But something's happened in Jairus' family. Look at the text. He comes to Jesus saying, my daughter has just died. 
And before we continue, it's interesting that when Jairus comes to Jesus in verse 18, he comes to him, and the text says, knelt before him. Jairus has not come to Jesus to oppose him as the religious leaders normally did, but he comes to Jesus to worship him. That word knelt is usually translated worship. So that exact same word knelt in our text this morning is used in Matthew chapter 2 verse 2. And it says of the wise men, they say, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to kneel before him. Or in the English standard version, we've come to worship him. Jairus comes to Jesus, not to oppose him, but to worship him. And he says, my daughter has died. I want you dads in the room with daughters to think for a moment about what would be going through your head in that moment. Jairus has seen his little girl die. And in that moment, something changes. Jairus, who undoubtedly had heard the truth about Jesus, perhaps had even seen some of his miracles, now is at a point where he comes to Jesus in faith. Notice what he says to Jesus. He says, my daughter's died, verse 18, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jairus comes to Jesus worshiping and comes to Jesus with faith that this Jesus is a a being so powerful that he can reverse death. Now, what if somebody came to you like that? What if I came to you, let's picture something a little smaller, and I came to you on Friday night, I knocked on your door frantically, And I said, listen, my wife's in the car. I think she just broke her leg. But if you just put your hand on her, I know she'll be okay. What would you say? I wonder if you would laugh at me. I wonder if you would say, no, wait, what? There's no way I can help you with that. And certainly, if Jesus is merely a man, then he's going to laugh at Jairus. Certainly, he's going to say, listen, bro, you've got it all wrong. I can't help you with this. But notice what Jesus says. He receives worship from Jairus, and then verse 19, he rose and followed him. Let's go. He receives worship, and he goes to a dead girl because her dad believes that he can make her live. There's a second truth about Jesus in our text. Before Jesus even gets to Jairus' house, we see Jesus restore the unclean. Look with me in verse 20. Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house. Jairus is probably in a hurry. They're on their way. Big crowds. This is Capernaum. This is kind of the home base for Jesus' ministry. Verse 20 says, Behold, there was a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, scholars believe that this woman may have been suffering from a condition called menorrhagia, which would turn her normal cycle into a daily reality for 12 years. Every day, 
this, even today, it's, it's a serious condition which can cause anemia, severe pain, extreme fatigue. This is a woman with very serious physical issues. And to make matters worse, if you know anything about the Levitical law, you could take your Bible and go to Leviticus 15 and, and read it for some afternoon reading if you're interested, and you'll learn that this woman is not merely physically afflicted, but she is spiritually, ritually unclean. Any couch she sits on is unclean. Any bed she sleeps on is unclean. Any person she touches is unclean. If she, if she was married before her affliction began, then likely in that day, her husband would have divorced her. Would have been common. If she wasn't married, then likely she would never have gotten married because of this affliction. To even touch her is to make yourself unclean. She's likely completely alone. And because she's unclean, she's forbidden from entering the temple and the synagogue. Picture this. Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, probably knows who this lady is and knows that she's not allowed there because of her condition. Ladies, if you can imagine what that would be like for a moment to be cut off from the people of God, to be afflicted with this severe physical ailment, you would stop at nothing to find relief. And this woman did. The Bible tells us in Mark's account, Mark chapter 5, verse 26, that she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. You imagine the hopelessness of this woman. You imagine the desperation. Nowhere to go. No help. Every place I go for deliverance, it only gets worse. And now she's broke, she's alone, she's cut off, she's unclean. And then she hears about Jesus. Maybe she saw one of the miracles he performed in Capernaum. Certainly the, the news spread like wildfire about what this Jesus could do. And she says to herself, look at verse 20, middle of verse 20. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And she said to herself, if only I can touch his garment, I will be made well. First, Jairus says, you just touch her and she'll live. Now this woman says, all I need to do is just touch the hem of his robe and I will be made well. This woman isn't entitled. She doesn't demand. She doesn't even want to take a moment of Jesus' time. She just wants to sneak up behind him in the middle of a crowd and believes with all of her heart that this being, this person, this Jesus is so powerful and so glorious that merely touching the hem of his garment is enough to make me well. And so she does. In Mark's account, Mark tells us that when she touched Jesus' robe. Jesus could sense power leaving him. 
And Mark tells us that Jesus stopped, and he turned around, and he said, who touched me? Now, Jesus, Mark tells us, was in a crowd filled with people. Think like, you know, a, a fair or bush gardens or Disney World or something. There's, there's people everywhere. And Jesus stops and says, who touched me? And the disciples, one of them, probably Peter, but one of them says, what are you talking about, Jesus? Everybody's touching you. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Something different happened. Somebody touched me. And my power left me for a moment. I could feel it. And so this woman, in fear and trembling, comes to Jesus and tells him everything. And verse 22 in our text, Jesus turned and seeing her said, and I love the way he talks to her, take heart, daughter. Just think about that for a second. Think about the way people talk to this woman. Ladies, I know there's many of you in this room that you have been talked to so harshly. Perhaps men too, talked to with such harshness, such unkindness. Jesus looks at her and says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. The Old Testament gave clear instructions on how to diagnose if an unclean person was now clean. Here's what the Old Testament doesn't do. It doesn't tell you how to make an unclean person become clean. But this woman merely touches Jesus and she is restored. You see who this king is. Now remember, Jesus is on the way to visit a little girl who's lying in her bed dead. And he stops to help this woman. There's some of you in this room, perhaps, that think my problems are too small for Jesus. Man, it's a small thing, really. He's got bigger fish to fry. He's got more important things. What I'm dealing with is not that big of a deal. Listen to me, Christian, brother, sister, Jesus cares for you. And if it hurts you, however small it might feel compared to some bigger issue over here, Jesus makes time for you. He loves you. And if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the type of love you've been looking for your entire life. A love that says, I, I cannot be too busy for you. A love that says, you cannot be too unclean for me to touch you and make you well. Jesus, because he's the king of kings, restores the unclean. Now let's get back to Jairus' daughter where we'll see a third truth about Jesus Jesus resurrects the dead. Verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. 
Now, to us, this sort of commotion would probably seem strange, but it it was custom in Jesus' day. When someone died in Jesus' day, the mourning was not private, it was public. Most of us, if we're honest, when we lose a loved one, we kind of want to detach that's fine. It's not wrong necessarily. We, maybe we want to be left alone. We, we want some time to have a good cry and, and just mourn in private. But in those days, mourning was public. Even the poorest of families were expected to hire at least two flute players and one professional mourner. We don't have a professional mourner. That's not, you know, yellow pages. I don't even know why I talked about yellow pages. You don't even know what that is. You know, the big yellow book, and you used to find, you know, professional services, right? Some of you know what that is. Um, You know, in the Jewish phone book back in Jesus' day, there's a big section for professional mourners. I mean, I'm really good at crying, right? And there's these people, and that was their job. And, And so by the time Jairus gets back to his house with Jesus, there's a big commotion outside of his house because there are paid mourners that are outside crying and playing funeral dirges and all that sort of stuff. Apparently, this little girl had been dead at least long enough for some mourners to be hired and to make their way outside the house. Look what Jesus does when he arrives in verse 24. And by the way, contrast this with the way he talks to the woman with the issue of blood. Verse 24, he says, go away. I love Jesus. I love how he can be so tender and gentle and yet just so firm and tough. Get out of here. Why? For the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And the people outside the house begin to laugh at Jesus. Now, some have looked at Jesus' words here. He says she's not dead. She's just sleeping. And they've used that to undercut the miracle that Jesus is about to perform. They say, aha, she wasn't really dead after all. She's just asleep. This is not a, a resurrection Resurrection is when you restore life to someone who has died. This is a resuscitation. Resuscitation, we we get that, right? That's when you revive somebody who's apparently dead, but not completely dead. You know, think of uh, Princess Bride, right? Mostly dead, right? Well, she's just mostly dead. She's not all the way dead. This is just a resuscitation. Well, I'm going to suggest there's three problems with that interpretation. Number one, first century people weren't stupid. They knew the difference between life and death. They probably even knew at least some things about resuscitation. Historians believe that the earliest references to resuscitation occurred 2,000 years before this story. They knew what resuscitation was, maybe not as sophisticatedly as we understand it, with our quick Google searches. They knew what resuscitation was. They knew what life and death were. Another reason why that interpretation fails is because sleep was a common euphemism for death. Even today, we use euphemisms for death all the time. It's something about death that seems so final. And so we say things like, she passed away, or he departed, or they have deceased, or Johnny's kicked the bucket. 
In the scriptures, one of the most common euphemisms for death was fallen asleep. And when sleep is used as a euphemism for death, the emphasis is that this is not going to last forever. So you'll see this a lot in the New Testament. We talk about the saints who have fallen asleep. It's not saying they're just sleeping, they're not dead. No, it's saying they're dead, but it's not going to be final. There's hope after this death. This death is but a temporary death. And that's what Jesus says to these professional mourners. She's dead. She's fallen asleep. Yes, but it's not a final death. And in a great irony, the professional mourners outside the house start laughing at Jesus. A third reason why I think that interpretation fails is because If you look at verse 25 and 26, let's read it together. When the the crowd had been put outside, Jesus went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. That word arose there, here's the third reason why I think that she's really dead. That word arose commonly means resurrection. That word is used 36 times in Matthew, and over a third of the time, it undoubtedly means resurrection. This little girl is dead, and Jesus takes her hand, and the mere touch of Jesus' hand causes a dead heart to start beating causes his lungs to start bringing in air again, causes blood to start circulating through veins again, and this little girl is brought back to life. Who is Jesus? He's the king of kings because he resurrects the dead. In the next miracle story, we learn a fourth truth about Jesus. Number four, Jesus reverses the curse. Jesus reverses the curse. Look at verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, he leaves Jairus' house. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, even if you're not like me, you're not blessed with 20-20 vision, I mean, I wake up and I see the same that I do whether I've got any sort of correction. For now, I know it's coming. Some of you all, you can take out your contacts or take off your glasses, and you can kind of start to think about what it might be like to be a little bit blind. These guys are blind, blind. And yet, even if we can kind of relate, some of us, we really can't relate with what blindness was like in Jesus' day. When you were blind in Jesus' day, you were considered cursed by God. Blind babies were often abandoned and left to be eaten by wild animals. Blind men were sold into slavery. Blind women were sold into prostitution. Often blind people were used for amusement. The best case scenario for a blind person is that you would live your life as a beggar. And on top of the poverty and the social isolation coupled with blindness was the spiritual shame. These people felt ashamed 
In John chapter 9, the disciples see a man born blind, and they say to Jesus, Jesus, whose fault was this? Who sinned, this man or his parents? Whose fault is it that this guy was born blind? Because everybody believed that if you were blind, you were cursed by God, which is why there's an old Middle Eastern proverb that says, when you see a blind man, kick him. Why should you be kinder to him than God has been? These blind folks were cursed by God in their own minds. And yet, despite, despite their suffering, despite their shame, I love the blind men in this story because even though they can't see physically, they see something that nobody else has yet seen. They are the first people in the Gospel of Matthew to call Jesus the son of David. Isn't that interesting? Just pause for a second and think. There's a difference between seeing and seeing, isn't there? Most of us can see some things, but can you see what really matters, friend? These blind men who could not see with their physical eyes saw a truth that no one else yet in this entire gospel, nine chapters in, have yet to piece together that Jesus is the son of David. Now, if you remember in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is adopted by his, his earthly daddy, Joseph, right? So why are they calling him the son of David? It's referring back to an ancient prophecy, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, nearly a thousand years before this story. David, King David, hears this from God. First Chronicles chapter 17, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. Since our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell, the entire human race has been under the curse of sin. But God did not give up on his people. And he had a shining, glorious plan to send a deliverer, to send someone from the line of Judah, from the line of David, one of David's sons. Way, way down the family tree comes Jesus Christ, born from the line of David. And these blind men get it, and they say, he's here. The forever king is here. The Messiah is here. They see, and they say, have mercy on us. And when Jesus entered the house, verse 28, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you and their eyes were opened. Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't correct these men for calling him the son of David? He doesn't say, guys, you got it all wrong. I'm just a Jewish carpenter. No. He honors them because they see the truth. He heals them. 
You know, through all the miracles in the Bible, and there's lots of miracles. There's miracles done by Moses and Elijah and Elisha. There's miracles done by the apostles. But there is only one person in the entire Bible that causes the blind to see. It's Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 35, the passage that Mike read to open our service up this morning, verses 4 and 5 says that we know God has come to save us when the eyes of the blind are opened. Who is Jesus? He's the King of kings because he's the one who reverses the curse. So why then does Jesus tell people to keep quiet about it? Look at verse 30 again. Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it, but they went away and spread his fame through all that district. Jesus doesn't want people to misunderstand why he's here. Jesus is not doing magic tricks. He's not doing charity. Jesus is on a mission to solve a problem that's bigger than desperation. That's bigger than death. That's bigger than blindness. That's bigger than being spiritually, ritually unclean. That's bigger than social isolation. Jesus has come to solve a bigger problem, and he does not want these miracles to distract from his mission. We see a glimpse of what that mission is in the final truth about Jesus. Jesus, number five, releases the captive. Jesus releases the captive. Look at verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man, literally demonized man, who was mute, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Demons are are spiritual beings, usually invisible to our physical eyes. They're created by God as perfect angels, and yet when Lucifer fell, a third of the angels fell with him. They followed Satan in rebellion against God, and those are what we call demons. They've been tormenting and enslaving humanity ever since. And here is a man who's oppressed and enslaved by demons so much so that they've taken away his ability to speak. And Jesus sets this man free. Why? Because he's the king of kings. Now, I told you that on Friday night, we got in the car and prayed for Holly to be healed. And we prayed that with faith, just like the blind men believed that Jesus could do it, just like the woman that believed Jesus had the power to make her well Just like Jairus, who knew that Jesus had the power to resurrect the dead, we prayed, and we got to the hospital and got the x-rays, and she wasn't healed. 
And that might be for somebody in this room, that's the reason why you say, I can't follow this Jesus. So he did some stuff in a book. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Dear friend, if that's you this morning, or a Christian, if your faith is wavering, thinking those thoughts this morning, let me, let me just... Let me just remind you of a few things. The scriptures never promise that God will heal everybody. In fact, earthly healing isn't your greatest need. Next Sunday, Lord willing, when Sam preaches us the next verses in this text, we're going to see a group of people that Jesus already has healed, and yet he's, he's spilling over with compassion for them. Why? They're better. They're fine. No, they have a bigger need than physical healing. And so do you. See, these miracles that Jesus performs in, in the Gospels are meant to point to something bigger. They're signposts. They're pointing to something bigger. The biggest thing is not that if you follow Jesus, life works out just fine all the time. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you fall into a hole and break your leg. But we believe in this Jesus because those things, those miracles point to something even better. This man, this demon-possessed man in our story is not the only one held captive to the forces of evil. Ephesians chapter 2 says, of you, dear friend, apart from Christ, every single one of us, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, that's all of us, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Dear friend, this is our greatest problem. It's not a broken leg. It's not a 12-year physical ailment. It's not a dead loved one. It's not even enslavement to some addiction. It's not isolation. Your greatest problem is that you are a slave to sin and you cannot set yourself free. Like the bleeding woman, you're diseased and cut off from God and His people. Like the blind man, you cannot see the truth about God. Like the little girl in the story, you're dead. And Jesus does all of these miracles to show you the best and greatest thing that He's going to do. He has come to live a sinless life and die on a cross as a substitute to set the captive free. That's why he came. And even when our smaller problems don't get fixed, we praise him because our greatest problem has been. That's what we celebrate every time we take the Lord's Supper together. Regardless of how bad your week was, Christian, the best thing that could ever happen to you has happened to you on the cross. 
Christ died in your place to set you free. That's what we celebrate. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, we invite you, we plead with you today to trust in this Jesus, to turn from a life of slavery to sin and say, Jesus, save me. And all you need to do is have enough faith to grab just the hem of his garment and you can be made well. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate what Jesus did for us on the cross. But I want to ask you, how have you responded to this? In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, we can either call Jesus a lunatic. That's what the people do in verse 24. They laugh at him. He's crazy. We can say he's a liar. Surely that's what the Pharisees thought in verse 34. They see him cast out demons, and they say, you're doing it with the power of demons. Or we can bow at his feet and worship him as Lord. If you're in this room and you have not yet bowed at the feet of King Jesus, we invite you to do that before you leave here today. If you're in this room and you are a follower of Jesus, no matter how hard your life is today, we take the bread and the cup to remember the greatest healing we could ever ask for has already been won. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song. And we're going to invite our families to head with kids and PBC kids to head to the back, get your kiddos, and then we are going to come and take the Lord's Supper together as a family. Let me pray for us, and then I'll invite you to stand and sing so our families can collect their kiddos.